So we're reading from Acts this morning. Um, and it's going to be Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to 11. So Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. Really good to have you with us this morning. Uh, as we move through the book of Acts, the story of how this small group of Jesus followers became a global movement in the early days of how this message, the gospel about Jesus, spread from this city called Jerusalem to the regions around it and eventually to the ends of the Roman Empire and the ends of the earth where we are today. And what we've seen time after time through the book of Acts is that the gospel has overcome all kinds of barriers. It's overcome persecution, it's overcome conflict, it's overcome internal threats within the church. And this week, we're going to see that the gospel doesn't just overcome conflict, but actually uses conflict to strengthen the church. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word this morning, that we'd see the gospel afresh ourselves, but also see how radically different the gospel leads us to approach things like conflict in relationships, but also within the church itself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God of reconciliation, that we see this in your word, that you are the God who calls sinners back to relationship with you, and that you have done everything through Jesus to reconcile us to yourself, that to anyone who believes they have their sin forgiven, washed away and are made new and adopted in as your very children. And so, Father, we pray that we too would be agents of reconciliation, that our desire would be to resolve conflict and to do it well, and all that your mission might go forward and that more people might be reached with the gospel for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, I think, I think teenage boys are objectively hilarious, and the way they resolve conflict is objectively hilarious. And I may have shared this with you before, but probably the best illustration of teenage boy conflict resolution was what I witnessed during a game of 1v1 basketball. Typically, 1v1 basketball can have a little bit of argy-bargy, a bit of shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, that sort of thing. And in one particular game, 
two of my friends had got to the point where they were so annoyed with each other that they did that thing where they start pushing each other and then get caught in an infinite loop of, recon of kind of reciprocal pushing because no one wants to fight, but no one wants to back down. And so they're stuck in this to and fro of like pushing each other backwards and forwards when up steps a third friend and he decides, I know how to solve this. He punched one, he punched the other, and he said, there, you're done. Now, you might have missed how clever that was, so let me just slow it down for you, what he saw. What he saw was an irreconcilable conflict, that it was never going to resolve, that neither of them wanted to fight or not fight. But what he did know was that neither of them wanted to fight him because he was crazy. And so when he hit them both, he turned the conflict towards himself to a very solvable problem, which is, would you like to fight me? Both of them answered no, and the conflict was solved. Now, I don't know if he is somewhere today as the head of HR in some really innovative tech startup, and he's kind of introduced, he's doing TED Talks about this new model of conflict resolution, or maybe he's working with NATO and brokering peace deals between nations, or he's in prison. Either way, I don't know, it could be, it could be any of a number of options. But it's funny, as a, as a teenager, you would hope, you would hope that as he got older, that his ways of handling conflicts would mature. But I reckon as I get older, I see in myself and in people around me that often, sadly, the ways that we resolve conflict when we were kids are the ways that we approach conflict now. That oftentimes you bring those same habits through when it really comes to a high-stakes situation. Often the ways that you used to handle tensions are the ways that you handle them now. You have the same strategies and the same ways of dealing with things, whether you're an avoider or a confronter. We don't do conflict well. We are prone to divide the world around us into enemies and friends. Friends tell us good things about us. Enemies tell us bad things. And a friendship switches from, from kind of friendship to enmity when someone goes from speaking just what we like to hear to something that we don't want to hear. We don't reconcile. We nurse grievances for a long time. We're easily offended, easily angered, easily wounded. We pout and sulk and moan. We go after our critics and return unkindness for more unkindness and then with interest. We avenge ourselves through gossip because we avoid conflict, so instead of bringing it to the person, we get around them. We avenge ourselves with cold silence. We avenge ourselves mentally, rehearsing situations where we verbally destroy all of our enemies and they bow before us and admit that they were wrong and were wrong all along. We do everything just about except lovingly do conflict, lovingly disagree. And this is the culture that we swim in. So it isn't any wonder then that Christians often find themselves divided against one another, that churches even split the churches are often rendered completely ineffective for mission because they're so tied down with infighting that they just can't get on with taking the gospel out. And surely one of the reasons that the Western church has been in many ways ineffective in this mission of making more and stronger disciples that Jesus sent his people out to do is that so many are so wounded from infighting that there aren't enough soldiers to kind of get on with the, with the mission. So what we're going to see in this passage is that if Jesus is at the center, that that is the starting point for dealing with tensions. And it's also true that if you follow Jesus and you're about his mission, that it will lead to conflict. And that that's actually part of what goes on, but it's not a bad thing. In fact, it can be the very thing that strengthens the church and takes the mission forward. 
And when Jesus is at the center, churches can come together because it's the gospel that unites us and the gospel that brings us together. And so we're going to pick up this story that starts with a conflict in Acts chapter 15. And we're going to start at sentence 1. But just before we get there, a little recap as to where we've gone before here. Paul was a guy who killed Christians, but then he became a Christian. He was confronted with Jesus. He understood the gospel for the first time. And he goes on to be a follower of Jesus. And not only that, but a missionary who takes the gospel out. And we read in the book of Acts that in a city called Antioch, which is kind of in modern day Syria, that he was commissioned and sent out with his friend Barnabas. And they took another guy, John Mark, with them. And they moved throughout the area uh, in the Mediterranean that will come up on the screen for you on Paul's first missionary journey. He travels to Cyprus with Barnabas. They evangelize pretty much the whole island. They keep going on to a place called Perga. And John Mark, who's with them, leaves them at Perga and goes back to Jerusalem. Just keep that in your mind because that's going to come back up in this passage today. John Mark leaves and Paul and Barnabas continue on. Then they go to the place last week, Lyconium, where people think that they're gods because they perform a miracle. They tell them that they're not. They try to inform them of the gospel. Then the people decide that they're not gods and that they want to kill them. They beat Paul up to the point where they think he's dead and drag him outside the city. And Paul is so eager for the gospel that when he regains consciousness, he wants to go back into the city and tell them about Jesus. And after all this, they end up going all the way back to Antioch where they started. And they basically are telling the church there everything that's happened all the people who've come to faith, all the churches that have been planted, and all the gospel work that's gone on in these Gentile areas. That just means non-Jewish areas. And it's while they're at Antioch, telling the church about everything that's happened, that a problem arises. Look what it says in 15, 1-5. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So this section starts by saying some men came down from Judea. And again, like we've mentioned before, down means down in terms of elevation. It doesn't mean south. The area that they're going to is actually north of Jerusalem. But they come down from this city on a hill to the area. And they're telling some people there, that sure, it's great that you know Jesus and everything, but also you have to get circumcised, which was a part of a Jewish custom that was meant to be kept by God's people. And the reason that they're listened to is because the sense is like, well, these folks are from Judea. They're from where this whole movement started. They're from where kind of the gospel first rung out. And so it has a sense that like, these guys are from the big smoke, right? They know about this kind of stuff and they speak with some kind of authority. And we still do that today. There might be, there are certain regions of the world that are associated with things. For example, if, if someone's from, or if you're from South America, people just assume that you're good at soccer, you're good at football. And in this way, when these people come from Judea, they have a certain authority because people are like, well, that's where the gospel was wrung out from. They must know what they're on about. But here, here, Paul and Barnabas are shocked. And it says here that no small dissension, 
which is Luke's polite way of saying there was a massive fight about this. There's no small dissension rose up as Paul and Barnabas say, no, 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 this is not gospel teaching. It's not the case that you guys need to get this particular custom done in order to be saved. And so because this is an issue, they decide that they're going to resolve it. Instead of talking about it amongst themselves, instead of gossiping or whatever it is, they go, we're going to go right to the source. We're going to go to Judea where these guys came from and we're going to sort out what's happening here because this is a major issue for the gospel. Because if people are teaching this kind of thing, people are going to be confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so in this way, they're going to go and sort this conflict out. And so they head down to Jerusalem. We read this. It says, But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order, and order them to keep the law of Moses. So there are some Pharisees who if you've read the Gospels, you'll know were a big part of the culture in that area and who clashed with Jesus often. But here, some of the scenes have come to faith. They've been converted to the Gospel. And here, they're very concerned about the law because their background were people who were very, were very deliberate about the following of the law. The part of their culture, part of the, the, the culture that the Pharisees had, was strict observance to the law. And so they've brought that background with them as the, the gospel is starting to do its work. And so here they can't get around the idea that to be one of the people of God means that you actually have to follow all of these customs to, to the letter. And so here they say, no, 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 all these Gentiles who've been saved, that's so great that they've responded to the gospel. But if they're really going to be part of the people of God, they need to get circumcised. And so there's a debate. And then this happens. In Acts 15, 6 to 11, we read, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is a huge moment for the church. This is the first time someone has introduced some kind of outside doctrine saying that like, no, no, in order to respond to the gospel rightly, you also need to do this. And here we see as they debate it, there's new clarity around what the gospel is and what it isn't. And Peter stands up before all of them and declares, no, 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 it's by grace alone. It is by God's saving work, not anything that we do or that we contribute. It's not by following any particular customs. It's not by any human contribution. It is entirely the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, st he establishes clearly and firmly for the early church that the way the gospel will go forward as it moves to new areas and new places is that it's grace, 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 and not works. And this matters massively because if you don't have this clear in your understanding of the gospel, you can get so many other things wrong. You think of it in this way, my eldest son 
is, is my son, which means that in many ways he looks like me, he has carries some of my personality traits, that he responds to me as a son and should respond to me as a father and an authority figure in his life. But all of these things do not make him my son. You could find a kid elsewhere in the world who looks more like me, like a tiny 11-year-old version of myself, than my own son, and that wouldn't make him more my son. You could potentially find a kid who was more obedient or responded more like a son to my fatherly instruction. You could find a kid out there who, who covers all of these areas in ways that, were, that well exceeded him, and yet they would not be my son. Because what makes him my son is that I'm his father. It's what I've done before he was even born. It's what, it's what I've done as his father that makes him my son. And nothing that he does can change that. In fact, all of those things are in response to the fact that he is my son. And in the same way, what makes a Christian a Christian is not what you do or what you contribute, but what God has done. That's why the metaphor for conversion is new birth. It's like the first birth. You don't fully realize the implications of it until many years later almost. It wasn't that you chose God, but that God chose you. And that's what means that salvation is by grace and grace alone. And any works that we do are in response to what God has already done and completed in us. They're a sign that a new work has begun in our soul, but they're not the things that earn a new work in our soul. We respond to the grace of God. We don't earn it. And here, right in the middle of the book of Acts, they clear up once and for all that it's by grace and grace alone. And just think on how significant this is. To think that you contributed nothing to your salvation. That in sin, we had rejected God. That we would taken our own lives into our own hands, knowing that we ourselves are not the source of life, and we'd cut ourselves off from the author of life, and what was before us was eternal death. And yet God, in His great mercy and His grace, sent Jesus Christ as an atoning sacrifice to pay for our sin, to pay the death that we owed for our sin, and to bring us back into relationship with Him. And knowing full well that none of us on our own would choose to accept this gift of faith, he sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us so that we'll respond rightly to the gospel. There is nothing that we have done to earn our salvation. It's grace. And here, that's why Paul and Barnabas and Peter as well are so adamant about it. It's grace, grace, grace all the way down. Because right here as the gospel is going out, if they get it wrong, it's going to lead to errors all over the known world. But instead, instead... They get it right. The gospel is about grace. See, what's at stake here is not an issue of kind of culture or this or that. It's about the central issue of what is the gospel? What does it mean to be a follower of God? And so at this point, the gospel is clarified and disaster is avoided. And the church, rather than being pulled apart by division, is strengthened and unified and clarified around what the gospel is and what it isn't. And even over the centuries, it's often the case that when doctrines are introduced from the outside that are wrong and incorrect, that as the church works through that, our clarity around what is true and right about the gospel gets stronger. 
that it can in fact unify the church. And we see that this is the impact that it has here. As some false teachers are saying, this is what you must do to be saved. The, this church returns to the scriptures, they return to the gospel, and they're like, no, absolutely not. The way that you come before God, the way that you come to faith, is by grace and grace alone. And after all that's happened, the church is unified, they're pulled together, and then you think, great, that's it. There's now no more conflict for the church to have to work through. And that's why it's so strange that only a few verses right later we read this about Paul and Barnabas. Look what it says in Acts 15, 36 to 41. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So having resolved one question about the gospel and circumcision, all of a sudden another tension arises. Paul and Barnabas are planning to kind of go back through the missionary journey, through the churches that they'd planned to see how they're going, to check that they're healthy and growing, that they're clarified on what the gospel is. And as they're doing that, Barnabas is like, great, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, and we're not told why, no, I don't think we should. And it's not clear, we're never told why it was that John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. We're not told that it was like he was worried about the persecution and so he kind of chickened out and went home. We're not told if it, what, whatever it was about. We're just told that he went home. And we're told here that this is a big issue for Paul. Paul says to Barnabas, look, if we're going to go, we can't take John Mark with him. And it's such a, an issue between them that it says they sharply disagreed. Now on this, Paul and Barnabas are not just mates. Their friendship is a deep gospel partnership. I don't want you to miss this. It's not just like they used to play on the same cricket team back when they were at high school, and so that's why they're buddies, or they kind of grew up on the same street or something like that. Now, this is their backstory. Paul hated Christians, persecuted Christians, had Christians arrested and killed, and then himself gets saved. But when he comes back to Jerusalem saying that he's a Christian, you can imagine the feeling in the church at that point, right? I mean, imagine if you yourself had had family members who were arrested or harmed by this guy, and he's now coming back saying he's a Christian. Many of them are worried, is this a trap? Some of them are worried, like, what's the game plan that he's got here? And when he comes back, Barnabas vouches for him. Barnabas is the guy who says, no, I believe a real work of salvation has gone on here, and we can trust this guy. Can you imagine how deep a friendship that would forge? But not only that, these two went around planting churches together, sh sharing the gospel together, but not only that, but facing persecution together. Barnabas is there when Paul gets the life beat out of him and is one of the ones who's there to actually nurse him back to health and take him on the rest of the missionary journey. This is friendship level Anzac. These are not just like casual friends or buddies or anything like that. This is deep friendship. And yet, they disagree so sharply that they actually have to part ways. 
But it's also important to notice here that this is not a bitter division. It says here, But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. That actually after this, after they decide, look, we can't actually go the same way. Barnabas, you go off to Cyprus. You make disciples that way. I'm going to go this way with Silas. You take John Mark with you. I'll head over this way. We're going to make disciples and strengthen churches. And the church prays for them and blesses them on their way. They actually head out with their blessing. They disagree so sharply, but these brothers love one another. And for the sake of the mission, they find a way to continue forward, even though they can't go together. They love each other. They've both risked their lives for the gospel, and yet they can't work out a a solution on this. And so they work out a way to go forward and for the mission to keep going forward. See, why are these stories in here? They're in here because they show us that the church can actually be strengthened through conflict. That if the gospel is at the center of the church, then the church should be anti-fragile. I don't know if you've ever read the book called Anti-Fragile, but it describes three types of organization. There's robust, fragile, and anti-fragile. Robust or resilient is the one that you tend to think of is good with conflict, but basically this is an organization that can handle a lot of conflict and just keep going. It doesn't necessarily get dealt with, but amidst all the tension, things just keep going forward. Then you've got fragile organizations, that is, when there's stress upon the organization and conflict, the whole thing just falls apart. But the ideal is anti-fragile. These are organizations that actually get stronger through stress. That as difficulties and conflicts arise, they get dealt with properly and they make the group stronger rather than weaker. A church that's focused on the gospel should be anti-fragile. That is, can work through conflicts and come out the other side stronger than if they'd never actually had to go through it in the first place. That is, instead of conflict tearing it apart and it leading to bitter infighting and splits and dissensions and just dysfunction of every kind, that instead they'd be made stronger. And here we see in this passage, on one particular issue of doctrine, the church gets clearer about what the gospel is and it unifies the church. And then on a secondary issue, which is how it is that we're going to go about this mission and how it is that we're going to strengthen the churches, Paul and Barnabas disagree, but then work out a way to keep going forward. This is the gospel strengthening the church, Jesus being sovereign over his church to strengthen it even in the midst of disagreement. The gospel unites the church and they go forward. See, churches come apart when they lose the gospel as the center, when something else becomes the center. And there's no way to reconcile conflicts because what's at the center should not be at the center. But when Christ is at the center, we can work through things. We can be strengthened through conflict and actually grow as a church community and for that to lead to gospel multiplication rather than complete dysfunction. And this means a couple of things. For a start, it means that Christians are called to work through conflicts with one another. We're told that the church is Christ's bride, that he loves his church, nourishes his church, sustains his church, And that we see through the whole book of Acts that this is exactly what he's doing. Through every trial that comes their way, Jesus is sovereign over his church and working through his spirit to carry the gospel forward. Jesus loves his church. And so it is a problem, and it's more a modern problem, 
when you hear people say things like, I love Jesus, but I'm just not about the church. I really love Jesus and the gospel, and I'm all about grace and all these things, but God's people, I, I, kind of, I keep my distance from that. And the reason that's not okay is that it would be like a close friend of mine saying to me, Jez, you're as close as a brother to me. I just can't stand your wife. Can I still come over on Saturday? Now, it might be possible for that to happen, but there's going to be a tension now between us that actually needs to get worked out, isn't there? You can't just kind of gloss over that kind of thing. That that relationship is so close that you can't just sort of be casual about that sort of thing. And in the same way, if your relationship with the church isn't healthy, your relationship with Jesus isn't healthy. If there are problems in your relationship with the church, you have problems with your relationship with Jesus because the church is Jesus' bride. And right from the start, conflict is not new. It's a part of our human experience and it's a part of our church experience. And the Bible, the New Testament letters, assume. They don't say in case, them, it probably won't happen, but in case there's a conflict, here's a kind of couple of things you can do. No, it assumes that there will be conflict. Because if you get a whole, I mean, what is the church other than a group of sinners called together? You put all sinners in a room together, there's going to be trouble. But here, we're equipped to deal with that and to continue to love one another and persevere with one another. See, when Paul and Barnabas heard that others were teaching this thing about circumcision, they wanted to deal with it, and openly and honestly and directly. They didn't just say, oh, those idiots, in they're always talking rubbish down. Don't even worry about them. They just, they just say stuff. It just, yap, yap, just forget about it. And then build a whole other church in another region. No, they wanted to deal with it directly and straight away because like, this matters for our unity. And it also matters for God's people that we'd work through these things. And to see that on the other side of it, we can become more mature followers of Christ, but also a more mature church. And so with this, it means that we're called to reconcile. If you have an issue with someone, you're called to, as best you can, deal with it. Gently, patiently, but directly. To speak the truth in love. To be prepared to forgive and to reconcile. We're called to do this for the sake of gospel unity. But it also means this, that sometimes the gospel on secondary issues means parting ways. Sometimes. Paul and Barnabas couldn't get to an agreement on this issue. And I think it's in, in God's wisdom that Luke didn't include more details so that we'd be willing to sort of dismiss it as just a very specific scenario. But whatever it was, they loved each other and continued to. But on this issue, they just couldn't agree and had to come up with a different way of doing it. And in this one, it meant parting ways. And this is why I reckon that in some ways, denominations aren't always a bad thing. Sometimes denominations in churches can actually lead to a greater overall unity. When people disagree on secondary issues over governance or spiritual gifts or baptism or communion or gender roles in church or whether you have paid staff or lay people, all these kind of things that are not primary gospel issues, that it can be helpful to sort of say, look, you go your way and make disciples, we'll go our way and make disciples, we'll see you at the finish line with Jesus there. But to do this in a way so that secondary issues don't keep coming up and be an obstruction for the gospel going forward. And it can actually be a way of being united. It's also why we do connect here at church. It's a chance for you to look at things, and it might be the case that the way that we do things here 
just is, is not going to work out for you for whatever reason. Now, the negative of this is that sometimes it can lead to like a, a consumerism in churches. Like in, in Sydney, we are blessed to have a bunch of great churches. And so the negative flip side can be that people can almost become like, I like to pick and choose things. I want a church that's like penty, but not like crazy penty. I want some Bible teaching, but not to the point where it's like boring or that sort of thing. I want this, that, and the other to sort of put it together. That's not helpful for gospel unity. But it can be helpful when churches are clear about what they're about so you can say, yes, I'm all the way on board with this mission. Or for me, that's a secondary issue. I disagree on that, but it's not a major issue for us going forward in church unity. But any which way you cut it, church unity matters because we worship a God who is the God of reconciliation. And he calls us to be united with one another. He calls us to be wise about what are primary issues, what are issues that are upstream that we absolutely cannot compromise on. Matters of right doctrine. Matters of what the gospel is and what it isn't. But then on the other hand, with secondary issues, to be okay with disagreement and to still love one another and work towards making more and stronger disciples because Christ calls us to. The church is called to be united so that we can get on with reaching people. So what do you need to do from this? Are there people that you need to reconcile with? Are there relationships that actually need reconciling, even in this church community? Or maybe there are people that God has put on your heart, as you've heard this, and you think, I, I actually need to reach out to them. Are there people that you need to forgive or ask forgiveness of? Now, all of this can be very challenging. And this is why we have our small groups here at City Light. This might be a way to work out with another group of Christians what's wise to do in taking the next steps. But we are called to be united as God's people to do conflict well, knowing that the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. And it empowers us to love people like Christ has loved us and to forgive as God has forgiven. And so what we're going to do to actually finish our time now is we're going to do communion together. And we're going to share communion uh, in this way that um, in a moment the band's going to come up and for the first part of the song they're going to share it as an item. And so during that time, that's the time to go and get the bread and the drink from the back, and to come back and to grab a seat. And then after that, during the break in the song, we're actually going to take communion together. So I hope that makes sense. For the first part, we're just listening, reflecting on the gospel, and taking the time to get the bread and the juice, and then to come back here. And then after that, we're going to share communion together. And the reason we do this is that a sign that we are united by the gospel and by Jesus, that it's His blood poured out for us, that it was his flesh broken for us that is the foundation of our unity. That it's the forgiveness that we find in Jesus that is the foundation for the, and the call for us to forgive one another. That we're a church not united as a community group, that we just like the same stuff. But it's because God has called us, chosen us and drawn us into relationship with him that we get to call one another brothers and sisters. And so Jesus himself instituted communion as a way of celebrating this that we'd remember that we are united by Jesus. And so if you're here and not sure where you're at in your faith, um, I'd encourage you just to take this time to reflect rather than taking communion. It's nothing superstitious. It doesn't bring good luck or anything like that. And so it's a good time just to think about the gospel and what it means and where you stand before God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, to take this and remember how much has been done for you in the gospel. 
And so I'm going to pray for us before we do that. And the band's going to come up and lead us in an item. And during that time, we'll go and take the items for communion. Let's pray together. Father, you are the God who loves and the God who has reconciled us to yourself. That for everyone who is here and a follower of Jesus, that you have saved them by sheer grace. Father, we praise you that you are the God who has loved us with an eternal love, who spared not even your only Son, that our sin might be washed away and forgiven, that we might be made new in Him. And so, Father, as we share communion together, may we reflect deeply on all that You have done for us in Christ Jesus. To the glory of Your name. Amen. Take a moment now just to sit and reflect, and when you're ready, to head up the back and grab the communion stuff. Take this bread and eat in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for you. And take this and drink in remembrance of Jesus' blood spilled for you. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are a forgiving God, that though we have sinned and walked away from you, that you sent Jesus to die for us, that he has washed away our sin, and he has brought us back in a relationship with you. And we thank you that now in him we have forgiveness and life forever. Not only this, but you call us as a church to be your church family, with you as our Heavenly Father and one another as brothers and sisters. And Father, we pray that our unity would always be centered on Jesus and what you have done through him. Father, we praise you for this and pray that we will glorify you forevermore. Amen.